You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It's crime, crime all the time. Cybercrime, the C2C underground market, and the expansive holiday shopping season. Rebranding and gangland, how crooks exclude targets on the basis of language or geolocation. Shaming as a criminal pressure tactic, bad apps in the Play Store. Andrea Little Limbago looks at internet blackouts. Carol Terrio wonders what the metaverse really means. And living large while living on the lamb. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. There's a fair bit to think about today with respect to cybercrime and the hoods, goons, malls, gunzels, cons, delinquents, skells, perps, and gonifs who commit it. We're in the midst of what's come to be called the holiday season, although the shopping season may be more apt. And of course, the C2C markets are as aware of this as anyone else. Phishing as a service operations are rising in prominence in those criminal-to-criminal markets during the holiday season, security firm Egress warns. They've observed a surge in typo squatting associated with phishing kits, with Amazon in particular being an obvious favorite for impersonation. Egress writes, quote, In the week before Black Friday, researchers uncovered 200 new phishing kits containing imitation Amazon emails available on dark and clear web forums, with some retailing for as little as $40. One listing offers multiple language support, the ability to obtain credentials for a range of email providers, and the option to prompt victims to take and submit pictures of their credit cards. Some kits boast capabilities to avoid detection, with one listing offering automated IP address checks to prevent automated security tools from scanning the link. The effect of this is to commodify cybercriminal tools and to lower the barriers to entry for aspiring crooks who lack the technical chops or perhaps just the patience to develop the fishing tackle themselves. While a great deal of the discussion of C2C markets and increased rates of online fraud has been associated with Black Friday, and since Black Friday is now four days in the temporal rearview mirror, one might think that the risk was subsiding, but in this case one would be wrong. Have you noticed that the pumpkinification of supermarkets and discount stores now begins sometime in August, more than two months before Halloween? It's season creep. 
And season creep has extended Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Giving Tuesday from their nominal days to real weeks. Expect the rate of cybercrime to remain high for the next month, at least. Late yesterday, security firm Mandiant released a report on Sabbath, which refers to itself by the leet numeronym 54BB47H. <laughs> Get it? Uh a ransomware shaming site that resurfaced on October 21st. Sabbath isn't actually new. Mandiant researchers have determined on the basis of the Cobalt Strike beacon infrastructure the group uses and sadly persistent grammatical errors that it preserves from site to site that Sabbath is in fact a rebranding of a ransomware affiliate operation that's earlier gone by the names of Eruption and more recently Arcane. Mandiant tracks the gang as UNC-2190 and says it's made a specialty of targeting critical infrastructure, including education, health, and natural resources in the United States and Canada. UNC-2190's preferred strain of ransomware is called Roll Coast, which appears to be a non-Java cousin of Tycoon ransomware, Rollcoast has, as many other malware strains do, a list of excluded languages, which the malware won't execute if it detects them on the system it infests. The usual languages, those spoken in Russia and the near abroad, are on the list, but in addition to these are some unusual exclusions. Some of them are quite surprising. Croatian, Slovak, Albanian, Swedish, Latvian, and many others. Not on the exclusion list. English, French, and Spanish, to mention just three. Why is it characterized as a shaming operation? Well, that's because it uses a mixture of direct contact with downstream victims and public exposure of stolen data to pressure its targets into paying. Sabbath had its coming-out party with an attack on a U.S. school district. Mandiant says, quote, Sabbath first came to light in October 2021 when the group publicly shamed and extorted a U.S. school district on Reddit and from a now-suspended Twitter account. During this recent extortion, the threat actor demanded a multi-million dollar payment after deploying ransomware. Media reporting indicated that the group took the unusually aggressive step of emailing staff, parents, and even students directly to further apply public pressure on the school district. End quote. Sabbath is in all probability another ransomware-as-a-service operation, an affiliate program in which the top-level operators get a cut of the actual perps, that is, their criminal affiliates, take. ThreatPost offers an update on the tardigrade malware that's being deployed against targets in the biomedical sector. The update confirms tardigrade's unusual and dangerous ability to change its components. Both smoke loader and cobalt strike have been reported, morphing in ways that make it unusually evasive. Supernus Pharmaceuticals filed an 8K with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Friday, disclosing that it sustained a ransomware attack that began in mid-November. The company is cautiously optimistic, saying that it contained the damage without disruption to its operations and isn't paying the ransom, but that it can't rule out re-attacks or malicious use of stolen data. Security Week says that the Hive ransomware gang claimed responsibility on Thanksgiving, anticipating the 8K by a day, and pointing out that the victim hadn't yet filed that 8K, which itself was probably intended to apply some pressure. 
Mobile security firm Threat Fabric has described how criminals are introducing banking trojans into apps offered in Google's Play Store. While Mountain View regularly purges its store of malicious apps, the recent wave of malware that's posed variously as QR scanners, PDF scanners, or cryptocurrency wallets has been somewhat more difficult to detect because of the deliberately small malicious footprint they display— and which they've adopted to help them evade the permission restrictions Google Play enforces. The malware also pays close attention to geographical location before installing, the better to evade places and jurisdictions where scrutiny may be more rigorous. Threat Fabric has identified a dozen malicious apps that, in aggregate, have been downloaded some 300,000 times. And finally, we turn to the Daily Mail for a snapshot of what the civilized world is up against when it tries to prosecute Russian cyber criminals. The Mail's unusually detailed screamer reads, Our evil super hacker wanted by FBI for using ransomware to fleece millions of dollars from Americans is unmasked by DailyMail.com in his plush hideout in Siberia as Kremlin turns blind eye. The tabloids talking about Mr. Yevgeny Polyanin, a Russian national 28 years young, whom we've heard of before as being wanted by U.S. authorities for his alleged role in the Our Evil Gang. The male's news hounds have tracked him to, quote, a $380,000 home in the Siberian city of Bernal, where his wife Sophia openly runs a social media baking business, end quote. The mail adds that Mr. Polyanin has been seen in Barnal driving a $74,000 Toyota Land Cruiser and that he owns another car worth maybe a cool $108,000. This lifestyle sounds more provincial upper middle class than big-time crime lord, maybe upper upper middle class given that he's living in Siberia, and it's certainly a far cry from living on a yacht in the Black Sea and collecting gold chains and exotic cats. But the mail is absolutely on point when it says it'll be a hot winter in Chelyabinsk before Mr. Polyanin or his colleagues are extradited to face American law. We do have one question. What exactly is a social media baking business? Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. 
practice can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg recently announced that he's changing his company's name to Meta Platforms, Inc., or Meta for short. And this is because he's chucking a load of his eggs into his vision of the futuristic-sounding metaverse. Now, the idea of the metaverse is nebulous at best. It involves virtual reality, instant communications, instant broadcasting, and a whole host of other technologies. I've heard people describe it in the media as the internet brought to life. Zuckerberg himself has described it as a virtual environment you can go inside of, like a magical portal that allows you to step inside of the world rather than gaze at it from the other side of a screen, like an outsider. You know, this could give a whole new meaning to the horror genre. Just imagine a digital monster literally snapping at your tail. But right now, we have a number of virtual reality worlds, right? Gaming is a big one. And the idea of the metaverse is as we create more of these virtual worlds, we will need to somehow interconnect all of these disparate virtual communities into a playground where people can meet and game or meet and work or meet and hang out, shop, watch a movie or attend a theater, a conference, a circus. So you would be in your living room or on a beach or wherever with your virtual reality headset or augmented reality glasses or whatever else they come up with to entice us more deeply into this digital realm. But the idea is that you would be mentally engaged in a digital world, but not have to be physically present. I mean, think about it. You wouldn't be looking at your colleague or a friend on a screen, but hanging out in this virtual coffee shop together or a pub or a meeting room or on a beach. According to NPR, Victoria Petrock, she's an analyst who takes the pulse on emerging tech. She said it's the next evolution of connectivity where all of those things start to come together in a seamless doppelganger universe. So you are living your virtual world the same way you're living your physical life. I don't know. I find it really hard to wrap my head around. But then I'm not a tech visionary. There is no doubt, though, in my mind that the pandemic has put this concept of the metaverse on steroids. Literally billions of us were trapped at home at the same time. And somehow a huge number of us were still able to keep working, learning and communing with people in our individual worlds. So metaverse sounds fabulously sci-fi. And in a way it is because we're still in that idea phase. 
What is interesting is that Mr. Zuckerberg is doing his best to secure a serious foothold in the concept of this metaverse world, including rebranding Facebook to Meta Corporation. I mean, what do you think? Do you think this is a smart move on Facebook's part? A cheeky move? A desperate move to remain a player? One other thing to note is that Facebook are not alone tap dancing on the metaverse stage. You have Epic Games, of course, the makers of Fortnite. Earlier this year, they announced a $1 billion funding round to support Epic's long-term vision for the metaverse. NVIDIA have told the world that they are busy creating the Omniverse, a platform for connecting 3D worlds into a shared virtual universe. Sounds a lot like the metaverse, doesn't it? And that's the question. Are they exactly the same? Are they utterly different? And the thing is, for any metaverse, omniverse to manifest itself, it needs experts and money across industries, cultures, and technologies in order to work. In other words, competitors need to cooperate in order to win. But one thing is for sure, this move suggests that technology leaps are not going to slow down. The digital world is here to stay, and it is going to entrench itself more and more into our lives. And the tech is going to be thrown at us with even greater precision. You want to be careful what you let into your lives because it's really hard to get rid of once you get used to it. This was Carol Terrio for The Cyberwire. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She's Vice President of Research and Analysis at Enteros. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. You know, you and I have spoken in the past about, um, I believe you, you uh, introduced me to the term the splinter net of, uh, you know, nations sort of uh, you know, putting a, a fence around their own access to the internet. And I know something you've been tracking is that there have been nations that have been blacking out their internet for their citizens for a variety of reasons. What do we need to know about this? Yeah, I think it really does. I like that framing because it is part of the broader government attempts to control information within their borders. And so you, some strategies are more on the data privacy side and um, or data access. Some are on the data localization and storage. In this case, it's really on stopping access to the to the internet. And so it kind of goes across the, the whole gamut um, and the whole spectrum of that. We're seeing just a, a continued growth in internet blackouts. And what that basically refers to, you can, that also can be a spectrum from just blocking certain sites all the way to full out having an internet blackout. India holds a record for the longest democracy with an internet blackout in the Kashmir region. And mm. that still is you know, almost on and off several times. And by one estimate, it cost them almost $3 billion in 2020 by doing that. And so there are big business and financial repercussions for this. So on top of the you know, societal implications of it, as far as the Populations not having access to communication, not having access to, I mean, just if you think about how everything that you do through the internet right now, to, to, to your finance, to transportation, to ordering food, like everything. Uh, so that's obviously the, the enormous human cost. For companies, they should care about this because it really is a financial cost as well for anyone doing business perhaps in that area. And where we're seeing it really is focused on, you know, the couple of core areas. One is around election time in many countries. And so that, you know, should be concerning to folks who care about democracy. Uh, we see it around times of protests, uh, like in Iran was a good example of that. Uh, what's going on in Sudan right now, the blackouts continue as, as we're talking right now. And that's been going on for a while. 
but you know, in Myanmar, in the Tigray region, in Ethiopia, like if you, if you were to start looking at where protests are across the globe or various kinds of conflict, we're almost always increasingly seeing some level of internet blackout by the folks in power. As technologies come online, I'm thinking about um, you know more practical satellite internet, things like that. Is it is it is it becoming easier for for citizens to work around these things? Uh, you know, it depends. You know, because you think about in many cases, these are already occurring in areas that may not be where some of the most developed internet you know capacity is. And so, mm. I think in some areas, like, so like Hong Kong would be a good, good example where you know many people in that area are figuring out how to work around some of these blackouts. But that's when the, you know, the Chinese government will then leverage a different tool, such as their, their security mm-hmm. regulation. In many of these other areas, there just isn't that, that level yet of, I guess, you know, you know, digital awareness, I would say, because in many cases, the internet is still fairly new compared to other areas of the globe, or there just, right. just isn't the training capacity to understand that. So I think there may increasingly be ways to, to, to work around that, depending on where you are in the globe. But at the same time, for so many of these cases that are especially in some of the already you know, most impoverished areas of the globe, the, the capacity just isn't there yet. Do you suspect that this is an effective tool that governments have, and, and so we'll, we should expect to see this continue? I do. And, and it's just, I think about, you know, there's the statistics that, that you know, over the last decade, there's been about 850 different internet shutdowns across the globe, and about 790 have been since 2016. So almost the majority mm. have been in the last five years. And it does continue over the last couple of years just to remain at fairly high levels. And it's not just coordinate, it's not just in one country. There are over 20 different countries in this year alone that have been deploying internet blackouts. And so if it was just one of those cases where it was, okay, it's just here, you know, in Iran, some cases or in Russia, it's like sort of the usual suspects. But when you're getting to over 20 different countries, leaders look at what each other are doing and, and they, they learn from that. And so when they see that, it, oh, it was very successful, it's watching the protests over there, they're going to try it as well. And so there is a, um, you know, the learning effect and seeing how it affects and how successful it is elsewhere. And it's, you know, it's relatively inexpensive, right, for the, for the government mm-hmm. to deploy. Mm-hmm. Have there been any pushes for nations to say that this is a fundamental human right, that, you know, we, we, we shall not interrupt this? Yeah, it's a great question. There, there has been, and that's what I think is actually interesting, where I think that there is some growing visibility on this now that we're seeing the UN has come out and said that you know, digital rights are a human right and having access to the internet is, is part of that. Um, the World Economic Forum has started talking about this a bit. And so when we start seeing you know, sort of the, the non-usual, you know, outside of the cybersecurity community and the, sort of the tech uh, publications, when you start seeing the, you know, those like nonprofits and those focusing on economic development focusing on it, Access Now uh, does a really great job tracking internet blackouts and you know, their nonprofit focuses on basically just the impact that it has across all of society. And, so, and within the framing of it, it's a human right at this point. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to track for sure. Andrea Little-Lombago, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, 
Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.